Hello, hello. Good morning. Um, it, is, uh, it is an honor to be here. It's always a little bit odd to be introduced as the, uh, my role in our global organization, Every Nation. Sometimes I'm introduced as the president of Every Nation. Um, a, a few years ago, I was in our church in Manila, and our facility, in our building, we were hosting an event that was uh, sponsored by a bishop friend of mine, a good friend of mine, Bishop F. Tendero. And in the room, it wasn't my event, but they were just using our facility. And we had round tables and, and the, it, the, the president of the Philippines was there at the time, President Gloria Macapagal Arroyo. And there were senators and all these people. And I was sitting way in the back, like I always prefer the back row to the front row. I mean, all, all the back row people back there, yeah? Yeah, all right, come early to get that back row, that's me. Um, and so I was back there and we had presidential security guards on our roof. There were snipers up there. There were dogs, sniff, bomb sniffing dogs all over our sanctuary and all this stuff. And so I'm back there. And then a guy with uh, f uh, presidential security who was a large man for a Filipino and he was fully armed came back to me and he said, uh, sir, you're in the wrong place. You're the, this is your facility. You're the host. You're supposed to be on the front table. I said, no, I'm, I'm, I'm good right here. He goes, no, you were supposed so, to, you know, the guy had an Uzi, so I got up and wisdom came upon me and I followed him and, and it's a room full of Filipinos and as usual, like most of my life, I was the only white guy in a room in a sea full of brown people and, and everybody's looking at me going, uh, who is that bald-headed white guy walking up there? And everybody's looking at me and so I sit down and I'm introduced, here's the... Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, here's Senator so-and-so, here's Mayor, here's the President Macapagal Arroyo, here's the um, U.S. Ambassador to the Philippines, and, and me. And so b the Bishop, my friend, introduced me to the President, said, uh, pre uh, Madam President, this is Steve Merle, he's the President of Every Nation. <laughs> and uh, the President looked at me, looked puzzled, and looked at the U.S. ambassador and went, what? And the ambassador goes, I have no idea. So here's what I said. You know, you, you get in these moments and you think, you hope you would say something really brilliant and, and that could really change the nation and the world. Here's what came out of my mouth. You ever say something and you're trying to get it and pull it back in and rewind and push restart? Well, this was one of those moments. I looked at her. Meeting the president, and I said, um, when she was puzzled about the president of every nation, I said, I looked at her and I said, that's why I'm so tired. <laughs> she said, what? And I said, I said, imagine how much pressure your job is. This is, this is what I do. It's just, and she's looking, I said, I'm the president of every nation ministries. We're a global missionary. She goes, oh, okay. So she hasn't called me for any advice. Um, so anyway, um, it really is a privilege to be here, and it was interesting. Um, um, I, this is my first time in Texarkana. I've heard about your church for many years. Um, uh, I, I, I first met Pastor John and Linnell probably 25 years ago because Linnell's parents have been spiritual mentors to my wife and I, and, and they have been uh, what God has enabled us to do uh, in the Philippines and Asia and the rest of the world has really been shaped by Apostle Kenneth Tracy and, and Sister Shirley and they have been a tremendous blessing to us and I've heard 
the rumors about your church from Apostle Candace Tracy. He's bragged about you for so many years, and uh, I'm, I'll be glad to tell him that it's all true, everything he said. Not that I doubt that what he says is true, but it really, it really is. This, is. this has really been encouraging to see firsthand what I've heard about uh, so, for so many years. And, and it was as someone who... Uh, my wife and I first went to the Philippines in 1984 for a one-month summer mission trip that turned into two months and then six months and then six years and then the rest of our lives. We just celebrated 30 years of our church there. And it's, it's a, after 30 years, it's, it's, um, God has done some pretty amazing things. And out of our church in Manila, Manila is a city of about 20 million people. And we have our one church, but we, we meet in 15 locations around the city and we planted churches in 60 other Philippine cities and several dozen other nations around the world. We're actually right now working in 73 nations of the world. And, uh, and, and, but it's been a privilege and an honor to be a part of that. And seven years ago, my job changed where I split time between Manila, Nashville, and Delta Airlines lounges around the world. And, and I, I get to travel a lot and see a lot of what, what God is doing. But when I go to churches, a lot of times I, you know, when I get picked up, it's interesting what you learn about a church from the people who host you. I was on the phone with my wife last night, and I was bragging about you. Some, I've met some amazing people here in a couple of days, some people who just are kingdom-minded people, and I, I really have been impressed, and that's not always the case. Um, it was interesting last night um, during, during a um, uh, fantastic uh, Mexican dinner. I, you know, I, I don't... I always like to go to local places. I don't really like to do the chain things. I'm, boy, you, there's some great food here in your city. Uh, that's not imported. It's really coming out of right here. So we had some good Mexican food last night with some bizarre decor, but really great food. Um, and um, yeah, which, which one was it? Where were you? Amigo Juan. Yeah, Amigo Juan. Um, it was interesting um, hearing Mike and Sharon talk about your pastors behind their backs what they were saying about them and they were talking about the integrity and they were talking about the honesty and the the character and and I thought you know that it says a lot what people say privately about their leaders and their bosses and I, and I really I really appreciate that because I don't a lot of times when I go somewhere the staff kind of privately dumps on me all the frustrations with the leader and and, and Everything that anybody says has been so positive and so honoring, and it really speaks well of this church community, um, what, what's really going, what, what you're really about, and, and I, I respect that and honor that. Um, I mentioned, and I want to share a, a word with you. I want to be faithful to what I was asked to talk about today. Um, but just so you understand, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a guest here. I'm an outsider uh, who I've heard about you for a long time. Uh, and I want to say this before I say anything, um, anything else. The most important sermon you'll ever hear, and I want to preface what I'm about to say with this, the most important thing you'll ever hear from this pulpit, it doesn't matter who speaks here, it doesn't matter who the, if it's a famous someone from TV or if it's a famous, not famous person from TV, if it's someone who doesn't own a TV or, or whatever, you know, you can, you can have guest speakers come in and tell their best stories and tell their best joke and, and things like that. But I, I want you to know this. The most important thing you ever hear from this pulpit, no matter who the speaker is, what the most important is what you hear week after week after week from your own pastor. Okay? So if you ever tune someone out, 
Tune me out today, but don't ever tune out your pastor when he's standing here preaching. All right, because the, it, it's easy to come as an outsider and, and, and speak because, um, you know, it, it, that, that's the easy part. But to, to, but to commit your life to stay in a community and serve and feed that congregation decade after decade, uh, there's something that needs to be listened to and heard there, okay? Now, I hope most of you won't tune me out, but if you do, that's okay, because I'm just a guest, all right? But let me say this before I share the word, and so you know, I, I mentioned my wife. My, Deborah, and I, my, Deborah and I have been married for 32 years, and most of that time we lived in the Philippines. Um, we have three sons. We're blessed with three sons who are 28, 26, 24. It's a different world, right, you know, having adult children. It was, we've enjoyed every phrase of parenting. It's been the Thrill, thrill of our lives, and, and my, my sons are amazing, and God has blessed us with two wonderful daughters-in-law and one granddaughter, Josephine Kate, who is almost nine months old, and she is the center of the universe, whether you knew that or not. Um, my wife, after raising three boys, finally gets to buy baby clothes for girls, and so she has actually bought enough baby clothes to clothe our whole neighborhood. Um, and we have to, do, Josephine has to change clothes about five times a day just to cycle through what my wife bought that week. She's a little bit obsessive with that. Um, but I think it's important for you to know that because I'm not just a traveling preacher. This is what I do, but who I am is who I am at home. And I hope you never get confused about what you do and who you are. Because who I am is a follower of Christ, a husband, a father, a grandfather. That's who I am. What I do is preach, start churches, train pastors, you know, send Twitter messages. You know, that's what I do. But that's not who I am. And don't let what you do, no matter where your job is and where how your career is going, good or bad, don't let that define who you are. That's just what you do. And I hope you do it with all your heart and I hope you have something to do. I hope you have a kind of job that you love. If you don't, find another one. But I hope, I hope you, but who you are is a lot more important than what you do. And so who I am is a follower of Christ, a husband first before anything else, a father, a father-in-law, a grandfather. What I do is not nearly as significant as who I am and it's the same with you. Do not get confused about the two. All right, having said that, I wanna share a word with you. And I want to look at the last things Jesus said before he ascended into heaven, okay? Jesus has come, uh, God in human flesh, born of a virgin. We call that Christmas. And then um, he's lived, he's taught, he's lived a sinless life, he's taught some amazing things, but that's not why he came, to leave us teachings and to leave us an example of miracles. That, that wasn't the point. The point was to come and die as a sacrifice for our sins. And so he, he died a death he should not have died. He died in our place and he was buried. But he was resurrected because he was sinless, proving that he was divine, that he was all of God and all of humanity in one, in, in, in one body. He was resurrected and now he's wandering, or not wandering, he's walking around giving final instructions to his followers before he ascends into heaven, okay? Now, that's the end of each gospel. You are, there are people here with different levels of knowledge of the Bible. We're going to look at four gospels. Gospel simply means good news. It's a sort of a little history of the life of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, 
and John, okay? And each of these people wrote similar stories but from different perspectives because they had different audiences. And so that's why when you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you will read a little bit different in each one. Matthew and Mark will tell the same story, but Mark tells it in half the words. Mark is like Twitter and Matthew's like a blog. Okay, if, you, if they tell the same stories, Mark will use half the number of verses. He's like Reader's Digest, okay? And Matthew and Luke especially will give details that you scratch your head and go, I'm going back to Mark because Mark, if you notice in the book of Mark, everybody's always running. They don't walk. They're always in a hurry. They're always running. Everything's quick. Everything's sharp. I think Mark probably had a little bit of ADD. Okay, he, he was, he, it's bouncing all over the place. So if you, if you, a great place to start if you're starting to read your Bible is starting with Mark because he tells the same thing Matthew and Luke say, but he does it in 16 chapters instead of 28. Okay, that's a great start point. So there are different perspectives of the life of Jesus, but every one of them ends with the last words of Jesus the last encounters of Jesus before he leaves earth and goes back to heaven. And we call, we've called that in the church world the Great Commission. How many heard of the phrase the Great Commission? All right, so I'm going to look at the four different accounts of the Great Commission. Last things Jesus said, last instructions before he leaves earth and leaves us to do what he wants us to do. Here we go. Matthew 28, 19. Um, it'll be on the screens on, on your sides if you, uh, if you don't have your Bible with you. Uh, read it on the, on the largest Bible in Texarkana, right there. I'm reading from the NIV. That might be the ESV. I'm not sure if it's slightly different. It's not because I'm illiterate. I'm actually reading something else here. Verse 19, Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Go and make disciples of all nations. Mark's account is this. Notice it's shorter. Mark's are always shorter. Mark 16, 15, he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. So Matthew says, go make disciples. Mark tells us how we do that. We make disciples by preaching the gospel. And then Luke gives a little more breakdown of the gospel, verse chapter 24 verse 47 repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations and Luke brings out what the gospel is part of the gospel is preaching repentance nobody likes to talk about that anymore repentance and forgiveness but if you want forgiveness there's repentance that comes before forgiveness both of those go together they're not distractions they're not incompatible it's two sides of the same coin and then John says it like this Feed my lambs, take care of my sheep, feed my sheep in John 21, 15 through 17. And so here's what happens. Matthew says, go make disciples of all nations. Mark says, preach the gospel to all of these places and people in all of creation. Luke says, preach repentance and forgiveness. And then Luke goes on to say, but wait for the power of the Holy Spirit. And then John talks about what do we do with those people once they've heard the gospel and responded? We feed them, we care for them. We build a caring uh, spiritual community called the church. All right, so that's the summary. Now, I want to focus on Matthew's account for just a moment, then we'll jump to Mark. Matthew says, go make disciples of all nations. The, the, the New Testament was originally not written in English. Okay, we realize that, right? It was originally written and primarily written in Greek. And the Greek word right there when he says, I hate to Greek you this morning. Don't you hate that when you get Greeked on Sunday morning? But I'm, I'm going to have to do it to make this point. Um, the, 
the word that's in our English Bible, go and make disciples of all nations, that word nations, the Greek word, the original word was ethne, where we get our word ethnicity, ethnos. In other words, he's saying, go make disciples of all ethnicities, nations. That word is used eight other times by Matthew, and all the other times it's not translated nations, it's translated as Gentiles or as pagans, or in other words, what the message that this Jewish writer, okay, the Jewish ethnicity and the Jewish culture and the Jewish religion 2,000 years ago, it was very insular. Uh, they, were not very, uh, they were not very integrated with other ethnicities and other cultures. It was, a, it was a very protective culture. And yet Matthew is writing as a Jew to Jews in the book of Matthew, and he's saying, he's using the word, go and make disciples of other ethnicities. The message to the Jewish people was, do not just preach the gospel to people who look like you, dress like you, eat like you, smell like you, uh, uh, speak the same language as you, and have the same ethnicity and the same color and the same nose type and hairstyle as you. Get out of your insular, insulated, segregated bubble and take the good news, the gospel, the message of repentance and forgiveness to people who don't look like you. Amen. That was the message. You do not have to have a passport to fulfill the Great Commission. You don't. Because it's not go and make disciples of nations, meaning political entities, where you have to cross a border and go through TSA and get all but strip search in order to get on the airplane. You don't have to do that. Some of you will, but most of you won't. But all of us are supposed to take the gospel. We're supposed to make disciples. We're supposed to bring the message of repentance and forgiveness to other ethnicities. Go and make disciples of ethnes. All right? Get that message. Now, my, um, my son, my oldest, all, all three of my sons were born and raised in the Philippines. and They lived there their whole lives until... They went to university, their university studies, they came to America. All three of my sons went to college on tennis scholarships. And when my oldest son was the first one, he, he, we wanted them to go somewhere where we had good friends and where we had churches that we were associated with. And so um, our headquarters in North America is Nashville. So my son went there and he started going around and meeting with tennis coaches in the universities. And so he goes, to, he, he ends up at Lipscomb University. Lipscomb is a small, um, it's a, it's a maybe, maybe 5,000 students, so relatively small compared to these massive schools, but it's a, it's a Church of Christ school. Anybody have a Church of Christ background? Okay, Church of Christ is, I mean, they're really serious Bible people. I mean, really, really committed to the Bible. Uh, but Church of Christ might be the whitest denomination in America. And so my son, when he went there, he said, I said, how did you like the 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 tour of the campus and he goes dad I love the tennis coach my teammates I think it's gonna be great he goes but he goes wow I have never been around so many white people in my life this is my 18 year old son looking at this college that's offering him the tennis scholarship he goes I don't know if I'm gonna like this I don't know if this is I don't know if this is for me he ended up signing and he and he played until he broke his ankle um, um, but um, See, the, he grew up in, a, in, a, in an Asian world, but even when he would come to the States, when we would, all of our churches in our movement 
are intentionally diverse. So our church in Nashville that he was a member of is a very large church, and it's about 45% white, 45% black, and about 10% other, Asian, Hispanic, East European, whatever, Middle Eastern, and, and that was the world. That, so he lived in a brown world in Manila, and then he would come to our churches connected with us, and they're, they're aggressively and intentionally and very committed to having churches that reflect our communities that, that, that we live in and our cities. And, and it was just a weird thing for him because he grew up living out this idea of we're supposed to take the gospel intentionally to other ethnicities. We're not supposed to do church and life just with people who are just like us. Now, he did, and then before he knew it, um, he, all of his best friends were all the internationals. He had, we would, he would come, to, when we were back in the States, he would have all these people, these Malagasy's. Our house would be full with Malagasy's. Malagasy's are the people from Madagascar. Okay, you, you may have seen the docu- Disney documentary about Madagascar. <laughs> so he would bring these Malagasy's to our church, and then he would have these Middle Eastern, and, and, and then his, his tennis teammates who were all white guys, and, and he created a diverse world because of this. Um, now, what does this mean to us? It was interesting as I was listening to your video, a, a little bit of the history of this church. And what a history, what a rich history you have. 35 years in this community and what amazing things God has done. And I look at your hall out there and all the missions that you do and all the international missionaries you support. Some of them are my friends, some of the people on those boards out there. And I, 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 I look at this and I go, oh, I wish every church I went to had the same passion and commitment to global missions as you do because you guys are doing great with that um, and, and, I, and a lot of them aren't but when I heard your history part of that video just it seemed like it slapped me like it was like the Holy Spirit punching me going talk about that okay because I, I missed it last night um, but I, I saw it and you know this church started on Martin Luther King Boulevard I didn't know that till I heard the video some of you may not have known that it started right there and I thought your start is a little bit, has a little bit of a message about your destiny as well. And I think there's something significant about that, and I think God's going to use this place as a place of reconciliation and unity and doing exactly what this passage talks about, of a willingness and a passion and a desire to begin to take the gospel to people who aren't exactly like us. Okay, and it'll be a, you'll be amazed at what God does in the next 35 years of your history. It was it's interesting that um, when I was thinking about that, I, I didn't say this last night, but my mind flipped back to a little bit of church history. Um, a little over 100 years ago, there was a revival, uh, a Pentecostal revival in America that was known as Azusa Street. It was in the, in the early 1900s. Who's, who's familiar with the history of Azusa Street? Okay, it was, it was an amazing outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And a church historian, actually Pentecostal historian, Frank Bartleman, you may have read us some of his histories. He's, he, he's a, he was a prolific writer and do, someone who documented the history, of, especially of Pentecostal history. Frank Bartleman wrote this of the Azusa Street Revival. Quote, he said, the color line was washed away by the blood. That's how he, that's how he described Azusa Street and the move of God there. That in, one of, in the early 1900s was one of the most... Um, most, uh, what would be the word, Um, racial tensions in America were at their peak. It was one of the worst times for um, um, 
racial conflict in this country, one of the worst. I know things aren't always great at any time in our, but that, if you go back there and read what was going on then, it was one of the worst, and yet a move of God brought ethnicities together. And the gospel began to, in Bartleman's words, erase the color lines. It was interesting that about a decade before the Azusa Street revivals, the, in, in, 18, or, or in, in 1897, a guy named, um, a, a, a movement which became the first organized and, uh, you know, documented Pentecostal movement actually was before, predated um, Azusa Street, and when C.H. Mason founded the Church of God in Christ. Now, we know, anybody ever been to a Kojic church, Church of God in Christ, anybody ever visited one of those? Okay. Uh, it, we know it today as um, a, basically an African-American Pentecostal denomination, but it didn't start that way. Mason was an African-American who heard the gospel from his grandparents who were slaves. And, and he, he would hear the songs, and he, and he had a faith as a young, young child, and had, a, had an experience of the Holy Spirit. But for the first almost two decades of the Church of God in Christ, even though it was founded by an, an, an ancestor, who, a man whose ancestors were slaves, there were an equal number of white and black ordained ministers in the Church of God in Christ. An equal number. And it was a picture, and then the, the, the Azusa Street Revival was touching on that and that seemed to be the Pentecostal heritage until 1914 when all of the white ordained ministers, there was a big split and broke away, and then the Assembly of God Church came out of that. And the leaders in a decade ago really reconciled, and there was a lot of great stuff happening there. But here's what Mason said, and I love this quote from Mason, speaking into the Pentecostal and the move of God that was happening in the time. He said this, the church is like the eye. A little black and a little white, without both, we cannot see. And when people from different perspectives come together and worship together and strategize together and pray together, there's a way of seeing that happens. The church is like the eye, a little black, a little white, without both, we cannot see. It explains a lot of the blindness of the church. A lot of the blindness in the modern church of the inability to see needs and opportunities for the gospel because we tend to see things from our own perspective. I know some of this may not be your happy thought and it might be a little uncomfortable me touching into some areas, but it's tied into this text of go and make disciples of the ethne. We have to get serious about crossing into areas we're uncomfortable in to fulfill the Great Commission. All right. Now, let me zero in on Mark's message. Here's how Mark said it. He said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel. We've been talking about Matthews and that word ethne. Now, let's jump to Mark's shortened version. He said to them, here's what I want to talk about. The who the what and the where. Who, what, where? Real simply, who, what, where of the Great Commission according to Mark? Who? The scripture says this, he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel. I need to know who he is. Who said this? And when people give ideas and they give advice, 
I may or may not do what they say depending on who they are all right there's a lot of advice out there that you just need to ignore there's a lot of preaching out there that you need to just ignore there's a lot of stuff that we who is that it's one reason I felt like let me explain who I am before I talk to you who is this Jesus he said to them that he is Jesus this is Jesus saying it um, when I think about listening to the right people there's a funny story in the autobiography of John Kenneth Galbraith if, if you're an economics major then you ran into John Kenneth Galbraith Galbraith was a, actually sort of the father of American socialism I guess um, he was he was an advisor to presidents Roosevelt Truman Kennedy and Johnson okay multiple administrations he served as an economic advisor a brilliant economic thinker for his day in his autobiography a life in our times he tells a story about his housekeeper Emily Wilson and I'll read what he said it had been a wearying day and I asked Emily to hold all telephone calls while I had a nap shortly thereafter the phone rang President Lyndon Johnson was calling from the White House Okay, so Galbraith is napping. He's instructed his housekeeper, Emily Wilson, no calls, I'm napping. Phone rings. She answers. Get me Ken Galbraith. This is President Lyndon Johnson. Emily responds, he is sleeping, Mr. President, and he said not to disturb him. Well, wake him up. I want to talk to him. No, Mr. President, I work for him, not you. Galbraith goes on in that story in his book and he says when I called the president back he could scarcely control his pleasure quote tell that woman I want her working in the White House <laughs> I don't know if she took the job or not but she understood who he was he said to them go preach the gospel to all nations if we know who we work for we can say no to everyone else Amen. when we know who the boss is we can even say no to the president of the United States so when Jesus is the boss when he is Lord when he is the final authority in our lives and he says then it doesn't matter if someone else is saying something different it doesn't matter if someone else has another opinion. It doesn't matter if we can't afford it. It doesn't matter if it seems crazy. It doesn't matter if no one has ever done that before. All that matters is who told us to do that. If he said, expand this building, it doesn't matter what everybody else says. If he said, take the gospel there, it doesn't matter if they arrest people for doing that. He said to them, who is he? He is Jesus. He is Lord. He is God in human flesh. He is the Lord of Lord and the King of Kings. He is my Lord, my Savior. And whatever he says, that's all that matters. Other commentaries and opinions need to be ignored. Now, he said to them. We've established he who is them. Now, there are people who make a mistake in interpreting scripture and it's the mistake is very common especially for seminary people I I learned how to do this in seminary that we over contextualize 
What that means is we spend so much time and it's very important to figure out who's talking to who and what was that a message addressed to and is that, is that message for all people for all time? And we do that all the time in scripture. We go and we say, uh, you know, does any, anybody eat pork, pulled pork barbecue here? Anybody eat that? All right, there you go. You see, you, there are scriptures that talk about not eating pork. Why do we, we're okay violating that one, but then we don't think it's okay to commit adultery. Okay, they're, they're interpretive issues. But if we go too far with that, of who's talking to who, then you know what? Basically, none of the Bible's talking to us. We can take that to such a nutty extreme, and some people do that. Well, he was talking to those people there at, you know, in that moment. So that doesn't apply to me. When we go so far with that, nothing applies to us. But anyway, we need to use sane, rational intelligence what, so Jesus is talking to his disciples. How many of you are his disciples? Yeah, this applies to you, okay? Don't, don't try to confuse us with, you, with a bunch of, uh, of, of, anyway, let, let me go back to this. He said to them, the them is us. Even though we weren't standing there, we are his followers. So this is the message. He said to them, go preach the gospel to all creation. Now, what? We talked about who. He and them. Jesus and us. The what. What did he say? Simply it's this. Go and preach. Go and preach. When I first got to the Philippines, I, I came from a little town called Starkville, Mississippi. Starkville, Mississippi had 12,000 people living in it at the time. I was doing campus ministry at Mississippi State University, otherwise known as the Harvard of the South. Isn't that right? Yes. Only, only the academic elite are allowed to use maroon. Stanford, Harvard, Mississippi State, Texas A&M, I guess. The, the intellectual pinnacle of... Actually, Mississippi State is the Harvard of Northeast Mississippi. So anyway, I was there doing campus ministry, and so I'm in a town, there were about 12,000 students at the time, and the whole town was about 12,000 people. And in the summertime, pretty much the town shut down because all the students were gone. Seriously, stores and restaurants would close. I don't know if it's still that way. And so we would do summer mission trips and, and, and you know, summertime and all that. So when we first go to the Philippines, at the then, Manila's about 20 million now. In those days, it was about 12 million. So I'm going from a town of 12,000 to 12 million. It was quite a culture shock. I was on a different planet. I had never seen so many people in my life, and something changed in my heart. I saw multitudes, and when Jesus saw multitudes, it says he was moved with compassion and had to do something. I didn't have a choice. I had to do something about it, and then for me, that meant just staying. Everybody else went, left. I was supposed to be there one month. I ended up there for most of my life, and I'm glad. I'm forever grateful, but we had a pastor of one of the largest churches in the city at the time, he was Lester Sumrall's nephew, David Sumrall, and he came in to help our team understand the Philippines. We had these 60 American college students were doing a one-month summer outreach, and so David Sumrall tried to explain to us. Here's what he said. I'll never forget it. He said, you know, when you get on the road here in the Philippines, the traffic's crazy, some of the worst traffic in the world, creative traffic. And he said, he said when you see these lights at intersections, green, yellow, red, he goes, let me explain what those mean, because it's not like in America. Okay, green means go. You already knew that. Yellow means go anyway or go faster. Yeah, yellow means go faster because it's about to turn red. Red means go anyway. Just be careful. 
That, that's, he said, that's what it means. And he said, we also put stripes in the roads. Those are just street decor, decoration. They don't mean anything. Um, and he was serious. And so you know what? I, it helped me drive, and it helped me stay alive all these years driving. And I actually drive exactly like that in the States. I have to adjust. My wife's going, no, we're, we're in Nashville. You can't do that. Okay. But we took the philosophy of the green, yellow, red, and we applied it to missions, and we applied it to the Great Commission. You know when you see a people and, and they're open? That's green. That means go. When you see a people and it's closing and they're a little bit restricted and they're, they're standoffish and maybe a nation that they don't really behead people or throw them in prison for the gospel, but it's restrictive, you know what that means? Go faster. If a nation has a yellow light over it, go faster because it's going to be red soon. And then when you see nations that are red, some of these nations like Afghanistan and like Iran, Iraq, like China, like Vietnam, like, like Cuba, you see these nations where they've said, no, you're not allowed to plant churches and preach the gospel. You know what that means? Go anyway. Just be careful, but go anyway. Don't just, don't, don't, don't pretend like you're in America driving. Apply it to the Great Commission. So what he says is, what's, who? Jesus talking to us. What? Go and preach. You ever heard that phrase, preach the gospel and if necessary use words? Have you ever heard that Bible verse? Anybody ever heard that said? It's actually not in the Bible and it's attributed to St. Francis and there's no historical evidence that Francis ever said that because he certainly didn't believe it or live it. But Preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. That is like saying, feed the hungry, and if necessary, use food. Doesn't make sense. Clothe the naked, and if necessary, use clothes. No, preach the gospel, and words are required. The gospel is made of words. And so, the what of the Great Commission? What did Jesus say? Go and preach. Preach does not mean you raise your voice and wear a suit and sweat. Preaching can be conversational. Preaching can be a whisper. I have preached the gospel in China without raising my voice in a room full of people with, you know, I, I'm going to, don't have time to go there with those stories, but I have, you can, preaching does not mean the way you see it done on television. Preaching, it, it preach is not about volume, it's about content. When it's the gospel, we're preaching. Now, many, many years ago, I was a runner. I didn't run because I liked to. Genetically, I ended up fast. It wasn't that I worked hard and I tried. I was just fast. And, um, and so I, I ran. I ran. It was so long ago that I ran the 100 and the 220. Now it's the 100 and the 200. Okay? Um, it was yards then. It's meters now. And, um, and I was... I was a sophomore, my older brother was a senior. Now, I, I played all sports like Americans growing up. I, I wasn't really very good at any of them, but I was fast. My older brother, on the other hand, was fast, and he was a beast athletically. He was like always the best on the football team, basketball team, baseball team, track, golf. He ran the 101, and he threw the shot put in run, one. Those two are usually not combined. He was a freak of nature athlete. I was not. <laughs> Now, but I was fast. And so this is now, we go back to high school. I'm, I'm a 16-year-old sophomore, or maybe I'm 15. I'm a sophomore, my brother's a senior. I've never beaten my brother in anything in my whole life at that point. Golf, 
basketball, ping pong, uh, paper, scissors, rock. I've never beaten him in anything, not even close. And I was on the track team, and he was, and now it's track, and, and, and our coach decides at the last minute, because someone on another team got injured, there's eight lanes, and he decides at the last minute throws me in the 100-yard dash. He likes to see a little brother-on-brother competition, see what would happen. So you know what happened? We're down there. I'm 15 or 16. My brother's 18. He's never lost to me in anything in his whole life. And the gun fires. And in less than 10 seconds later, I beat my brother. I come in first. He comes in second. I've never beat. It was the greatest day of my life. Now, I've had greater, but at 16, that was it. That was the, I could have died right there and gone to heaven. This is like, I'm a success. I've achieved the greatest achievement that I ever, more than I ever thought I would achieve in my life. I beat him. 20 minutes later, they call. It's time for the 440-yard relay. You know, for now we'd say four by 400. My brother was the first leg, I was the second. I did not know at that point how mad he was that I beat him. But I was about to find out. We were laughing about this last summer at my son's wedding. We were just telling, recounting this story and laughing. And he says, Steve, you remember how mad I was? Remember what I did? I, I remember. Here's what he did. The race starts. He's down. He's about to prove to the world that that was a fluke that he's the fastest Merle in the world. He's going to prove it to everybody. So he takes off. He has never run so fast in his life. He made, he, it made, it looked like Usain Bolt is moonwalking. Okay, I mean, he blows past everybody. I'm, I'm, I'm the next leg, and I take a double take, and I look closely, and he doesn't have a baton. I'm going, I'm going, what? And as he gets closer, he's yelling, he's laughing and yelling. He goes, I forgot the baton. Just run. And he hits my hand. I go, okay. So I take off. I'm coming around the third leg, looks at me, and he's going. And I go, he forgot the baton. Go. I hit his hand. And that goes, it was the fastest relay in the history of the state of Mississippi. We won by, I mean, it was crazy. And we got disqualified. Because my brother left the baton. He was, so, he was so mad at me and so, I'm going to show him how fast I am. He just left it laying there. You know, a lot of people doing ministry leave the gospel. They go and serve the poor and they build houses and they feed the hungry and they do all kinds of amazing things that please God and they leave the gospel behind. You think about so many organizations. The YMCA used to be one of the greatest evangelism forces in the world, but somewhere along the line, they left the gospel. The Red Cross was the same way. Somewhere along the line, they left the baton, they dropped the baton, and they kept running anyway. The gospel. Go and preach the gospel to all people. Yes, serve. Yes, feed them. Yes, close them. But preach the gospel. Don't leave the baton at the starting line or don't drop it somewhere along the way because if we don't have the baton, it doesn't matter how great our run is. We've missed the point if we don't preach the gospel. 
What is the gospel? Real simple. God became a man in Jesus Christ. He lived the life we should have lived, the sinless life. He died the death we should have died, the penalty for our sins that he didn't commit. He rose from the dead proving his divinity. And he offers the free gift of eternal life to everyone who would simply believe. Don't forget the gospel. Now where? And I'll close with this. We talked about who. Jesus is talking to us. What? What are we supposed to do? Go and preach the gospel. Where? He said, to all the world. What does that mean? You know, we could say, yeah, that means go to Afghanistan. That means go to Iran. That means go to Iraq. That means go to Kenya. That means, yeah, yeah, all that. But it doesn't just mean that. It also means go across the street. And it also means go to your next door neighbor. And it also means, you know what we're doing in Nashville? Our church in Nashville, uh, we, we, we have, we've started finding these ethnicities in our city. Um, yes, our church is, it's, it's black, it's white, but right now we have a service that's Burmese. Who would know, who would have thought that there were thousands of Burmese, people from Rangoon, Myanmar, living in Nashville? They don't speak English. And we have a Sunday Burmese service. We have about 150 Burmese who come and worship. It's all in Burmese that our church is reaching out to another ethnicity. Burmese are Buddhist. Um, it's by definition, the borders of the nation are where the Buddhists are and separate from the Muslims and the other nations around. They're Buddhist. And we're seeing them come to faith in Christ. It's amazing. Uh, this year, we've seen in Nashville, we baptized this summer seven Shia Muslims who were, who were from the Kurdish community. We have a Kurdish community. The largest in the world outside of the Middle East is in Nashville. And we've been reaching out. If you, go to, if, you, if you go to Target across the street from my office, nearly everybody who works at Target is Kurdish. If you, you, know, you, you don't have to walk far to go find the nations. If I want to go find the nations in Nashville, I just walk 200 meters across the street from my office to Target. There's a Qdoba. I eat lunch there at Qdoba. There's a sushi shop next to there. I eat lunch there. I can just walk another... 10 meters, and there I am, surrounded by Kurds. Kurds are Muslims. They're, they're land. They don't have a homeland. They're, they've been slaughtered for generations by the Turks, the Iranians, and the Iraqis. Their, their land borders on those three, but they don't have their own nation. But they're an ethne. They're an ethnicity. There's no nation of Kurds, but there are ethnicities of Kurds that we have to take the gospel. I don't know who lives in Texarkana. I don't know. I don't know if you have, I doubt you have a lot of Burmese because they're all in Nashville. I doubt you have a lot of Kurds because they're all in Nashville. Who do you have? I don't know, but I know you have some people like that here. They might be Hindus. They might be Buddhists. They might be Muslims. They might be confused, but they're here. And if you'll take this Great Commission seriously, it's not just get a passport and go to another political nation, but it's get a Bible and get a gospel and get a heart to serve and go to an ethne. Go find some people who are not like you and don't look like you and don't think like you. And boy, the food they eat, it'll, it, it, it might make you think you're about to die and go to heaven. But go to those people. And some of the food you're going to find is amazing. I'll end with this story. My, my oldest son is a Ph.D. student at Vanderbilt University. And um, he's, he's getting a Ph.D. in Islamic studies. And it's given him an opportunity. He's learning Arabic. And it gives him an opportunity to meet Arabic 
Muslims all over Nashville to practice his Arabic. You know, he meets, he was meeting with some guys having some really good God conversations, some gospel conversations with some Muslims from, from Saudi, from Egypt, from all these Middle Eastern nations. And they're, they're Muslims. And so their dietary laws are, they have to be halal. Halal is the, you know, the, uh, the, the it's, it's very similar to kosher Jewish. And so my American, white American grown grew up in Asia, son, meets these Arabic-speaking Muslims, and they have God conversations, but the only place they can meet is in a Jewish deli because there's no pork in there, and Muslims won't eat pork in the Jewish, and, and so they meet in this Jewish deli and have these God conversations. You know, it makes life exciting when we start reaching beyond the familiar. It makes it scary, but it's exciting. Listen, God's going to do, you're great. Your first 35 years are amazing. Your next 35 years are going to make your head spin all that God does in and through and for this church community, Church on the Rock in Texarkana. Lord, I pray for this church. I first of all say thank you for the testimony this church has been in this community and in this nation and in the nations. And Lord, I pray that the way this church has impacted the nations out there, I pray that it would have the same impact in the nations that are already here. Lord, bless and multiply what you're doing in this church family. In Jesus' name, amen.